all lays out a logical case for why the gospel and the gospel alone is the answer to humanity's problems. And he shows us what the implications of the gospel are for every area of our lives. No wonder Paul was eager to get this message to Rome. He says, to all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints. Paul's going to show them why in the gospel, and the gospel alone is the power to create a new community. Friend, I got good news. The gospel is the power of God offered to you. The same power that brought Jesus' body out of the grave is in this gospel, that power for your salvation and healing. you receive this gospel? Are you unashamed of it? Are you ready to study it with an earnestness that will not only transform your life, but burn in your heart until you're eager to share it with others, until not even the threat of death itself can make you keep your mouth shut about it? Do you understand your desperate need for God's grace? Because Paul is about to walk us through the most beautiful picture of what God's extravagant saving grace looks like. So this is just the introduction. It's a little two-minute introduction to show you what we're getting into. What I like about this is it's actually showing you the beauty of Rome. And, and uh, I would love to be able to travel there Me too. And, and see that. Alright, so this is the actual study now. welcome you to the study of what many regard to be the most important book ever written on the Christian faith, the book of Romans, filmed on location right here in Rome at locations that are, um, that are very important to the early church or to the, to the birth of the faith itself. Many great Christian scholars throughout history have felt that, that Romans is the main and most important thing to study in the Bible. Martin Luther said that Romans was the most important part of the New Testament and that its central premise justification by faith alone was the doctrine on which the church rises and falls. St. Augustine in the, in the fifth century said that in Romans, all the shadows of his doubt were dispelled. Did you know, study of this book has been behind almost every major awakening in Christian history. Study of this book launched the, the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century under Martin Luther and John Calvin. Uh, study of this book launched the Great Awakening with Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley. It was study of this book that ushered us into the era of modern missions. In the book of Romans, Paul lays out a logical case for why the gospel and the gospel alone is the answer to humanity's problems. And he shows us what the implications of the gospel are for, for every area of our lives. Did you know that Paul's logic in this book is so meticulous that for the first hundred or so years of the Harvard Law School, first-year students were required to work their way through the book of Romans because of the careful way in which Paul builds his argument. Romans is the clearest, most in-depth look at the gospel in all of scripture. But, and here's where most people miss the boat, the book is not just written to explain the gospel to unbelievers, it's primarily a book written to Christians to take Christians deeper into the gospel.
look at Paul's opening greeting there in verse 7. He says, to all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints. Who's he writing to? He's writing to the saints. Many Christians assume that the gospel is only for unbelievers. They assume the gospel is just the entry right into Christianity, the prayer that we pray to begin the Christian life, the ABCs of Christian faith. But Paul is going to show us that in the gospel are not only the resources to begin the Christian life, but also the resources to grow in it. It's not just the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A through Z. In Romans 1.16, Paul says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Not contains the power of God or channels the power of God, but is itself the power of God. Consider this. The gospel is the only thing in the New Testament, other than Jesus himself, that is referred to directly as the power of God. You know, Rome was a place obsessed with power. You can feel their pride in their military and, and political machinery. These massive buildings, uh, never before heard of architectural feats, they just, they just scream power. But this was a new kind of power that Paul was speaking of to the most powerful city, most powerful empire of its time. He's talking about the power of God unto salvation, the power to forgive the sinner, the power to heal his sin-sick heart, which Rome, for all of its grandeur, could not touch. And here's what the book of Romans teaches to Christians. It's only by going deeper into Jesus do you gain more power for the Christian life. You see, the gospel is not just a diving board off of which we jump into the pool of Christianity. The gospel is the pool itself. Or to use Martin Luther's example, the gospel is like a well. You don't get the best water from a well by widening the circumference of the well. You get the best water by going deeper into the well. The same thing is true for the gospel, Martin Luther said. You want the, the, the best and the richest water. It's, it's not by going wider, but by going deeper. Interestingly, Paul has a very practical problem that he's trying to address in his letter to the Romans, and that is the division of, of Jews and Gentiles in the church at Rome. You see, the original church had consisted of Jews and Gentiles, with mostly Jews being in leadership. And so the church basically had Jewish customs and Jewish viewpoints on various social issues and used Jewish-style music. But then Emperor Claudius ordered all of the Jews, Jewish Christians included, to get out of Rome. You can read about this, by the way, in Acts um, 18, the first couple of verses in that chapter. Well, after five years, the Jews were allowed to come back, and so they rejoined the church. But now, having been gone five years, the Gentiles have been running the church by themselves um, for nearly five years. You can imagine the drama that, that this created. I mean, what would that be like in your church? You know, you, the, the people who are in leadership leave, and they come back, and people from some other culture have taken over, and now they're trying to get along again. Paul is going to show them why in the gospel, and the gospel alone is the power to create a new community based on a new humanity where former enemies and former rivals love each other and, and historical adversaries can get along and, and how they can learn to be in, from different cultures and diverse places. They can learn to be one people in Christ. In verses 14 through 17, Paul explains to the Romans he's writing to why he's so committed to getting the gospel there, even though it would likely cost him his life. In these verses, he uses three very powerful words to describe his commitment to the gospel. In verse 15, he says, I am eager to bring the gospel there to Rome, even though Paul knew that coming here would likely lead to his imprisonment and death. In fact, I'm here at a place called St. Paul's Outside the Walls. It's the second largest church in Rome, and it's a, a, a church built to commemorate the burial of the Apostle Paul. 
Um, tradition has it that it's his bones that are buried right there among the altar. Paul knew in his mind that, that his journey to Rome would likely end not with celebration, but with martyrdom, which it did, and then, and, and then death. The Romans did not like Jesus' claim that Paul kept repeating that Jesus was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They didn't like that because that's how Caesar saw himself. On many of the buildings throughout Rome, you're going to see that epitaph carved in the seal at the top. It'll say Caesar, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus' claim was viewed as a threat, and likely Paul repeating Jesus' claim was going to cost Paul his life, and Paul knew that. Yet Paul was still eager to get the gospel to Rome. And that's because he believed Jesus could provide something that Caesar could not, and that is the forgiveness of sins and the power of, of new life, the power of, of life after death. In verse 14, Paul says he feels like he has to do this. He has to come to Rome because he is, the word he uses is under obligation to the Romans. Some translations will say debtor there. And that's our second word if you're taking notes. Debtor, he's eager, now he's a debtor. Paul feels like he is indebted to the Romans to get the gospel to them. But here's the thing. Paul's never even met most of these Romans. How, how could he feel indebted to somebody that he's never even met? Well, see, Paul knew that the gospel was a message of extraordinary value and that he himself, Paul says, I don't deserve to know anything about it, but because I do, I'm obligated to get it to those who don't know it yet. You see, there's two ways that you can be in debt to somebody. You can owe somebody money because you borrowed it, or you can owe them money because somebody else gave you money to give to them. Say you work for Feed the Children and, and you've been given a huge donation of a million dollars. You're indebted to the children to get that money to them. That's not your money. You owe it to the children to get it to them. Well, see, that's how Paul thought about the gospel message. He knew he, I was no more worthy to hear this message about the offer of forgiveness of sins and eternal life in Jesus than anybody else in the world. But God blessed me with it. And with the privilege of hearing the gospel comes the responsibility of spreading it. To not do that, Paul said, is, is robbing Jesus of what I owe to him and depriving others of what I owe to them as well. So I am under obligation. I'm a debtor. Paul is eager. He feels like a debtor. And finally, verse 16, Paul says, I am unashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Unashamed means that I'm willing to testify to it, willing to be scorned for it, willing to suffer and to die for it, willing to stake my whole reputation on it. Why? Why, you ask? Because, because it and it alone, he says, is the power of God. It's God's one plan of salvation, his only way. It's how God rescues us from sin and renews us in his image. The gospel reveals, Paul says in verse 17, the way that we become righteous, the only way that we become righteous in God's sight. The revolutionary news of the gospel, Paul said, is that God's righteousness is not something we earn. God's righteousness is something given to us as a gift to all of us who will receive it by faith. Martin Luther, the great reformer um, in, the, in, in the 16th century, said that everything in Romans hinges on our understanding of that word righteousness in verse 17. Martin Luther said, I always assumed that to be righteous in God's eyes meant that I was good enough to earn his approval and, and, and good enough, to, righteous enough to escape his judgment. And because of that, Luther said, I hated that word, the righteousness of God which I've been taught to understand is the righteousness with which God punishes the unrighteous sinner. Nevertheless, he said, I pressed into Paul's teaching in Romans, most ardently desiring to know what 
he meant, what Paul meant by the good news of the gospel. And at last, by the mercy of God, I began to understand, listen to this, that the righteousness of God is the righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. It's a gift. Here I felt I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. I want you to learn this term as we begin our, our, our study. Gift righteousness. It's maybe the most important concept in Romans. God's righteousness given to us as a gift. Not a righteousness, a standard that we're judged by, but righteousness given as a gift. The righteousness Paul talks about in Romans is not righteousness you earn. It's righteousness given. Understanding that, as Martin Luther said, takes you through the very gates of paradise itself. Most people believe that salvation is something that you have to work for and you're good enough for and you earn. Paul says it's something that you receive. You accept it as a gift by faith. Get this, the word gospel was not an exclusively religious word when Paul started to use it. It just meant an announcement of good news. Whenever a Roman general successfully defeated an enemy, he would send out a what they called a gospel message throughout the Roman countryside announcing that he had won a battle. And he was telling the people, you no longer need, need to be afraid. There's nothing left to fear. Your enemies are defeated and you are free. The Roman general's gospel was not an announcement to come and fight or a summons to pay money. It was an announcement that this general, good news, that he had already won. The gospel is not good advice on how to fight the spiritual battle. It's good news that the battle has already been won. Christ's gospel it is an announcement that Jesus has finished the payment for our sin. He's resurrected and given us new life. And when you believe that, his righteousness and new life becomes yours. Believing this message, Paul says, releases us from the penalty of sin. And then as we continue to believe it, it releases us from the power of sin. You see that phrase there in verse 17 at the end of it? It is from faith to faith. The Christian life, Paul says, is from faith to faith. It's faith in the finished work of Christ that releases you from the penalty of sin. And then as you continue to go deeper into it, continue to believe it, by faith it releases you from the power of sin also. All the transformation that we need in our hearts, all the power to live a righteous life, those things are not found by summoning up our willpower. It's found by plunging ourselves deeper into the news of what Christ finished for us. It's like a friend of mine often says, the fire to do in the Christian life comes only from being soaked in the fuel of what has been done. This gift is offered, Paul says, to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, also to the Greek. Everybody, everyone, that's a big old word. It just means that there's nobody in any circumstances who's disqualified from it. Jews had a hard time understanding how Gentiles could be saved. They were such bad sinners. They were oppressors. Paul says, yeah, but this gospel is offered to them too. The Romans had perverse sexual practices and messed up dysfunctional families. Paul says, yeah, but it's offered to them too. This gospel is the power of God to salvation to anyone who believes, no matter how messed up their lives are. See, maybe you're in that category. You say, J.D., you have no idea how damaged I am, how, how, how much I've messed up my life and how much hurt I've caused to other people. Friend, I got good news. The gospel is the power of God offered to you. The same power that brought Jesus' body out of the grave is in this gospel, that power for your salvation and healing if you're ready to receive it. No wonder Paul was eager to get this message to Rome. So my question for you as we begin is this, have you received this gospel? Are you unashamed of it? 
Are you ready to study it with an earnestness that will not only transform your life, but burn in your heart until you're eager to share it with others, until not even the threat of death itself could make you keep your mouth shut about it? If so, why not start off our time together by asking God to open your eyes to see the wondrous riches of what he's given us in the gospel. The fire to do in the Christian life is going to come only from being soaked in the fuel of what has been done. You know, he was beheaded mm -hmm. in Rome. Um, and so that's, they got that church there saying that's where his bones are. And I would love to go see that. But yeah, you know, I mean, you that, that would be good. Would be, that would be something to go see. Let's go back to Romans chapter 1. Now that you've heard him, man, there was so much in there. Um, that guy talks really fast. <laughs> you know, you got to really listen. Because <laughs> he's throwing so much at us. But um, as you go back to, if we're going back to Romans chapter one, um, go to before we do that, go to Romans chapter sixteen. I want to show you something. <coughs> Romans chapter sixteen, verse one. Something that I didn't, I did not know. Uh, I just never realized it, or maybe Romans I never heard it until I got into this study as well. Romans chapter sixteen, in verse one. It says, I commend unto you, Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, Century. I don't know how to pronounce it. I have to look it up how to pronounce it. So, look at um, Phoebe. Now, your Bible might have it spelled, my, my King James is, is P-H-E-B-E. Another spelling of the same name is P-H-O-E-B-E. -E. And so when I looked up how to pronounce her name, it was pronounced Phoebe. So because the, the P and the H make an F sound, so it's, so it's Phoebe. So this, this sister that he is commending here, calling her Phoebe, and telling the people in Rome um, to be kind to her and to help her, because she's a servant of God, was I? Is actually also labeled in uh, in verse two. They considered her to be almost a deacon in the church. She was, yeah, she was a servant of the Lord, a servant of the church. Now this is why she's so important. And I wish that Paul had really made it very plain. He didn't make it plain, but the the scholars are showing that she is the one that's credited for carrying the letter to Rome. That she's the one that Paul, he wrote the book of Romans, he wrote this letter to the Roman church, and she and he gave this letter to her, and she was the one that traveled. Now you think about how she must have traveled on the Roman roads. The Roman roads were cobblestones, you know, and um, and it's called, you know, one good thing about Rome, and I think one of the reasons that Jesus waited to come to the earth when Rome was in power is because there was an old ancient saying that all roads re lead to Rome. You ever heard that? It's because Rome was, man, they were known for building highways. 
They were more modern. They were more modernized than anybody else was in during that century. Right. So she had to either walk on this cobblestone from where she came from all the way to Rome, or she rode in a horse and carriage all the way to Rome. But she sure didn't get nobody's Cadillac and ride on <laughs> Or they were on camel's back. <laughs> yeah, she didn't. She didn't ride no airplane. You know, she didn't get there by air balloon. She had to walk, or she had to ride an animal, or some type of a carriage or something. So can you imagine now how important this letter was to the church? How important this the Book of Romans is to us today? And I was shocked when he said that the Harvard Law School yeah, we did. studies the book of Romans because of the argument, the way Paul has presented it, of Christianity. That was powerful. Mm -hmm. And so this, this woman, I wrote, I mean, I'm going to sure I wrote down in my Bible that this lady mm -hmm. is the one who hand-carried the letter to the church in Rome. Wow. And like he said, Paul had never been there. This is before Paul gets there. Paul never met these people. So now let's go back and let's read Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 17. Having what he said, all the things that he said in our minds as, as we read this. It says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated into the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets into his holy scripture, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for the obedience to faith among all nations for his name, among whom ye also called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For my God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests that by any means now at length I might have prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you. Remember, he's never seen them. He's never met them. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end you may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let here so. In other words, he kept getting distracted, pulled one way, this way, couldn't get there that I might have some fruits among you also, even as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believeth, to first the Jews and also to the Greeks, Realize what Paul says here in verse 16. He's saying that the gospel of God, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is power. That is the power of salvation. Think about what he's saying. The gospel of Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ in itself is the power of God. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. That's a powerful yes, statement. 
in verse 17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as is written, the just shall live by faith. You know, as we live in this world, we live in our life, and Sister Bonnie can tell you, and Sister Lane can tell you as many years as they've been in this church and the battles they've been through, you live from one battle to the next, don't you? You live from either faith to faith. Everything you go through today, it might take all of our energy to get through it and all of our believing power and all of our prayers and all of our Bible studies. Sometimes just to get through the problems that we're facing right now. But y'all have been here long enough and gone through this enough to know that when this is over, whatever problem this is, and this problem is solved, well, there's another one coming down the road. If we're here. And now what I have But we live faith to faith. We live from one trial to another trial, but we live in the faith to get to the next one. We've been through a lot. Yeah. And we grow. We grow in our faith. Our faith is stronger. You know, nobody likes trials and tribulations and heartaches and heart pains. But do you realize those are the things that make your faith strong? Whatever don't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> it does. You know, with, with uh, one thing I don't like, I don't like wind. I don't care if it's cold wind, hot wind. If it's blowing, I don't like it. I don't like wind. I don't like wind at all. I've been in Kansas where it felt like the breath of hell blowing on you. There's nothing but heat, you know. Just, I you feel like you're melting right there in Kansas. It's the hottest place I've ever been when the wind is just so hot. And then I've been in places where the wind was just so cold, it's just piercing to your bones. I don't like wind at all. Um, That's but here's, Alaska. But yeah, Alaska, yeah. But think, no. about, think about this, though. The wind, the wind has a purpose. Wind has a purpose. Mm -hmm. Those trees that, that we admire, all those trees outside, if it wasn't for wind, they would all get to a certain height and growth and they would fall over because they would have no depthness of root. See that wind blowing against those trees and that constant, that constant blowing against those trees makes the roots dig in the dirt, makes that root dig, make that tree dig in. Yeah. They, they've proven this scientifically. Yeah, they've actually tap they, yeah, they've actually proven it scientifically. They they built this like dome thing and put these trees in it, and there was no wind. They were trying to see the effects of nature if they remove things out of it, and they remove wind, and the trees would get to a certain height and then fall over. There was no depthness of root at all. Okay. What does the wind do? Huh? Besides blow it. What does it do besides blow it? Just the constant resistance. And just the constant resistance of, of the wind blowing on the trees builds that resistance and makes that tree strong. And the, the constant blowing of troubles in our lives makes our faith strong. If we did not have troubles, we wouldn't have faith. We would have no need for it. Mm -hmm. So our faith would be weak. And then when something did come, we'd all fall over. <laughs> you know? Like, but that, domino, like dominoes. But that's why that's what that's what it means here. It's about faith to faith, you know. 
Anybody else see something in this scripture or anything that you want to discuss maybe that he talked about or anything that you see here that we could be read so far today? That it's all of our faith is in Christ what Christ does, not, not from our righteousness. Our righteousness. God doesn't look at our righteousness. Thank God. <laughs> yes. He, he just looks at what Jesus does. Amen. A lot of people think their righteousness, like he said, Going to get them into heaven, but it's not. No, it's, you can't. It's, it's, we, faith. Yeah. it's faith. We can't be righteous enough to get to heaven. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why one scripture says that there's uh, none's good, nobody's good. You know, but we've all sinned. We've all fell short of the glory of God, and it's not. There's no. You can't work your way into heaven. You, it doesn't matter what you do. You could fast until you literally starve yourself to death and just die. You still would be considered unworthy and you know when it compares to the righteousness of God. But you said it right on target, brother. It's the faith in Jesus, it's his righteousness, not mine. Mm -hmm. It's his his righteousness. I'm about, we're riding the coattails mm -hmm. of Jesus' righteousness. Yeah. And it's his righteousness that we will enter into the into the gates of heaven on his righteousness, riding on his coattails of righteousness, mm -hmm. not ours, because there's no way. That's, I like how you brought that out. Yeah. Anybody else say anything? Yeah, I took it to the turn to where he was telling them no matter what you was, they're Greek, Roman, it didn't matter what culture you was, he was, the grace of God was there for you when you wanted to accept it. It didn't matter where you come from. That's the way I took that. He didn't, he didn't judge about what you was, Roman, Greek, or whatever. Yeah. It was hard to preach to the, the, the multitude of people that they would accept it. Exactly. That's what I took from that. You know, and that's so important too. Mm -hmm. I had a I had a father-in-law. My father-in-law thought that uh, only white people went to heaven. Oh. <laughs> he, wow. might, he might have had one of them little white hoods in the closet. I don't know. <laughs> I questioned him one time. I'm not but that was his that was his belief that only white people were going to heaven. You know, but what you just said, the Jews or the Greeks, the Gentiles, thank, thank God that Jesus allows us Gentiles, not just the Jewish people, to go to heaven. You know, the only ones that, you know, maybe they maybe had a right is Israel. Because there was God's chosen, God chose them, there was a chosen people. But even they were so unrighteous and so, so filthy with sin, he had to send Jesus. You know, but isn't it beautiful how not only did he save Israel, but he saved all of us. That's true. No matter where our backgrounds are, no matter where we come from. And, that, and that's so important. Why would Paul say that Romans written for the saints and not for the uh, sinners? I mean, what's the specific thing? Well, it's like he said in there, it's first to get deeper in the gospel. He was presenting the gospel to the saints. Because you got to realize, too, that this church in Rome, they didn't have a TV. They didn't have the internet. You know? They didn't even, I don't even know if they had a preacher. I mean, I, I, don't, know, I don't know how they had church. Their church might have been nothing more than just a Bible study of what we're doing right here. You know? It might have been a house church. You know? Instead of actually meeting in a building. Because think about it. 
they were persecuted. The uh, Caesar had actually took the people who called themselves Christians and made human torches out of them throughout the city of Rome. I mean, they were persecuted. They were, you know, so we don't know really how they had church. So when Paul was writing this, he's trying, that's what they were saying is that the book of Romans is Paul taking the four gospels and defending them and explaining them as to who it is. One of the things that I did not know that he really brought out was that Paul keeps referring to Jesus Christ as not only the Son of God, but the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, this is, this is why he got beheaded. Mm-hmm. Is because they have on their, he said they have on their Roman buildings that Caesar is king of king and lord of lords. You know? And so in Rome, it was okay for you to have a religion. They had a lot of religions. But all of their religions had to fall under Caesar being the lord of all religions, being the god of all religions. And so he was the king of kings and the lord of lords. Caesar. And they worshiped Caesar as if he was the ultimate God himself. So here comes Paul. And Paul's saying, uh uh-uh. uh, Caesar's not the king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus Christ died for my That's the he's the king of kings and lord of lords, which is why they beheaded him. So that's why this is this this gospel, this this book of Romans was so important. Um, and it just blows my mind to think. And all of this was entrusted to this lady. How did, we don't know how, what she go through. How many nights did she sleep on the roadside mm-hmm. to get there? Because you imagine she's she walking by foot. Yes. Can you imagine walking by foot between here and Carrollton? How long would it take you to get there? <laughs> uh, about four hours. Four hours? Some of us would have to camp out overnight, brother, before we got there. We would have to build us a little campfire probably down there by the Tallapoosa River before we get to Carrollton. You know what I'm saying? We would have to fish in the Tallapoosa and get something to eat because we're starving now before we got to Carrollton. You know what I'm saying? So we, we don't even know how, what her age was. Maybe she you, don't know where she, you, don't, you don't know where she even started from to get to her. No. She maybe she was on the a, other side of the desert. Maybe she was a young woman full of energy and, and maybe she was a hiker, you know. She could just yeah. go and go and go. But what if she was in her 50s? It took her a while. What if she was in, <laughs> if she was in her 70s? Really we don't know. Well, she's so, <laughs> so we don't know the struggle. There was a journey she went through to get to Rome to, to give this letter to the Roman church. And I think that's something we should honor. Oh, yeah. When we think when we read the book of Rome, we should honor thinking, you know, when we get to heaven, I want to meet this lady. I want I want to give her a hug because and I want to hear her story. What did you go through? How many nights did you sleep on the side of the road? You know, was there danger? Was you in every Is that the only time she's spoken about? Is in the book of I don't know. That's, a, that's something we have to look up. I don't know. I never even heard of it until you mentioned it. I didn't even know. Well, yeah, they, meant, they mentioned her on, on, on here, and I looked her up. She's in, like I said, Romans chapter 16, verse 1, is where Paul yeah. gives uh, recognition and honor to her. Um, so that's that pretty, pretty amazing. Let me ask you something. I was reading in King, I'm reading in Kings in the Old Testament now, and it talked about that 
Saul was the first one that God let build the church of God. Saul, mm-hmm, because it, he built the temple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, but he said that the church of God, God would be written on over the church. Yeah. Because he, he formed the church. Oh, yeah, he I just, just, I just that. read that. He built, yeah, he built the first temple. Mm-hmm. He erected the first temple. David wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. David collected all the materials that God would let David do it because there was blood on his God hands. That Saul was Saul was not carried with blood like David was. He wasn't kidding around killing people like David did. Well, that's so, true. That's true. That's yeah, that. yeah. yeah. true. So let's let's go back to verse. Um, let's go back to verse eighteen. We stopped on verse seventeen. So let's go go on verse eighteen. It says for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has showed it to them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because they that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, though they became vain in their imaginations, and their foolishness of heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto a corruptible man, to the birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up unto uncleanliness through the lust of their own hearts and dishonor their own bodies between themselves. And in verse 25, He changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served a creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up to vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. Likewise also men, leaving the natural use of a woman, burned in their own lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves the recompense of their error which was met. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, and God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, impossible, unmerciful. Who know the judgment of God that that which committed such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do it. So that is the first chapter of of um, the book of Romans, and that is exactly what he's about to talk about. He's going to talk about the rest of it now. The human race is united by its common problem. We have rejected the authority of God and despised his glory. And for this, Paul says, all of us, the whole human race, stands condemned. You'll never appreciate the solution if you don't feel the gravity of the problem. You'll never run to Jesus for salvation if you don't know how desperately you need to be saved. Why? Well, because we wanted to make the rules. Romans is a book all about the gospel, written for Christians. 
to take them deeper into the gospel. Paul builds his case for the gospel in the book of Romans in a very logical type way. I love it because throughout the book, Paul, it's like he anticipates the objections of his readers and then answers them. So in verse 18, Paul anticipates the first question that he believes his readers will have after his declaration that he is not ashamed of the gospel and willing to die for it. He hears in his head someone say, why, Paul, would you insist that Jesus is the only way and why would you be willing to pay for that belief with your life? You know, Paul did not get in trouble here in Rome for teaching religion. There were lots of religions in Rome. There, were, there was always room for one more. Paul got in trouble and ultimately gave up his life for saying that Jesus was the only way. You see, Roman society in Paul's day only had two rules about religion. Rule number one, you can worship any God you want, just rule number two, don't say your God is the only God or that your way of salvation is the only way. In fact, on top of the Pantheon, which was a big temple that housed all the gods represented in the Roman Empire, on the top was a little seal that said Caesar, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The Romans were like, look, you can put whatever God you want to in here in the Pantheon. Just acknowledge that Caesar is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So why, Paul, would you insist that Jesus is the only way and that he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords if you knew that one claim was going to cost you your life? These are the questions Paul now turns to in Romans 1.18. He's going to explain why the gospel is humanity's only hope and how the truth about the gospel fundamentally rewrites the narrative of the human race in a way that produces a new humanity that brings the peoples of the world back together. To do that, he's going to first show us that all peoples of every culture are united in their rejection of God. He's going to show us that no matter who we are or where we've grown up, we've shown an attitude of hostility toward God. So here we go. Verse 18. Paul says, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people. And there's two dimensions of sinfulness Paul talks about here. Godlessness means wrong attitudes toward God. It's a corruption in our vertical relationship. Instead of being submissive to God, we're rebellious. Instead of being humble, we're proud. Instead of being glory givers, we're glory takers. The second word, unrighteousness, points to a corruption in our horizontal relationships. Instead of being loving, humble, and truthful with each other, we tend to be self-centered, proud, and manipulating. God's wrath is against anybody in these two categories because they, watch this, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. These attitudes of our hearts make us suppress or push down the truth about God that we see. Now, hear this. Suppression is not the same thing as ignorance. Suppression means that the truth is in there, but you kept yourself from acknowledging it. The truth about God, Paul says, is like a beach ball that you're trying to hold under the water. It keeps trying to come to the surface and you keep pushing it down. That's what the knowledge of God is like, Paul says. Verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. By the way, I, I love the New King James Version here. It's how I memorized this growing up. So let me use it here. For God has shown it to them. Two places God has revealed himself to all of us, Paul says. First is to us and also in us. Let's consider the to us part. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Creation, or what we see all around us, declares to us 
the reality and the power of God. Just behind me and to my left is the, the Sistine Chapel, uh, the ceiling of which is one of the most famous paintings in the world depicting the majesty of God's creation all around us. Instinctively, we know just by looking around us that nothing times nobody can't equal everything. Creation's beauty and magnificence whisper to us that there is a wise and powerful creator behind it all. Secondly, Paul says God has revealed himself, to use the New King James words, in us. Our internal longings for love and, and meaning that, that just arise from our hearts, our longing for eternity, points to the fact that we're more than just a, a cosmological accident. We are created in God's image, which is why we long for meaning and immortality. It's why we're scared of death. It's why we have an internal sense of right and wrong. Animals don't have that sense, but, but we as humans do because we are made in the image of God. These things testify to us that we are more than just accidental biology. Someone may never even have heard God's name, but their hearts instinctively know that he is there. Every human ever born knows that, Paul says, but we have all suppressed it. Verse 21, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Inwardly, we don't want to embrace the truth about a glorious, all-powerful, holy, ruling God. We don't want that to be true. Why? Well, because we wanted to make the rules. We wanted to take God's glory for ourselves. We wanted to be the center of the universe, the center of attention. We wanted to use our lives to please ourselves. Sin can be understood just by looking at the word sin. The middle letter is I. I want to be at the center instead of God. I want to make the rules instead of God. I want to call the shots instead of God. Inwardly, that's what every human now wants, and that makes us suppress the knowledge of God that creation and our consciences testify to us. Now, follow this. Paul says that suppression takes one of three forms. The first is disobedience. We rebel against the knowledge that we have. In chapter two, Paul is gonna explain that all of us, both religious and irreligious, fail to live up to, to whatever standards of right and wrong we establish for ourselves. We disobey what we know to be right. Secondly, our suppression can take the form of distortion. That is, we reshape God into a deity that, that we prefer, that we can manage or manipulate, a God who serves us or caters to our preferences. That's what all false religions do. Paul, Paul talks about this in chapter one. He says, we trade the glory of the eternal God for something we can substitute for him, something we can manipulate and control. That's gonna take the form of idolatry or, or false religion. Thirdly, our suppression can take the form of denial. We just deny that God exists. This would of course be atheism or agnosticism. Now you say, but, but I know some people who are genuinely convinced there's no God. And I don't think they're suppressing the truth. They just they think there's no God. Yes, but Paul is saying that the reason that their minds come to that conclusion is because their hearts don't want the truth about God to be true. So they suppress it. Postmodern philosophy has shown us that the most important factor in determining what we believe with our minds is what our hearts want to believe. Imagine a racist who is prejudiced against a certain kind of person. So he finds reasons to justify his hate. Everything he sees goes through the filter of his dislike of that kind of person. Paul says that the human heart instinctively hates the glory and authority of God. And for many people, that, that colors their interpretation of the evidence that is out there. They come to the conclusion that there is no God because internally it's what their hearts want to be true. Every human heart is born in a posture of hostility toward God, Paul says. So Paul then explains, verse 28, 
that this is suppression of the truth and rejection of God has resulted in all kinds of disorder and chaos in our heart. Verse 28, and because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they did not do what is right. Specifically here, they refers to Gentile nations, pagans, those who have never heard about God. But in chapter two, Paul is gonna show us that, that for those of us who grew up religious, our hearts are the same. The best religions in the world he's gonna show us can't change the fundamental structure of the human heart. So you could read that they here is we. We, the human race, did not wanna give God his rightful place in our hearts, so God delivered us over to a corrupt mind. In the next few verses, Paul describes what that corrupt mind looks like. He's gonna work his way through every facet of our lives. In verses 26 and 27, he talks about sexual corruption, which covers everything from sex outside of marriage to, to homosexual behavior. Then in verse 29, he says, they're filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. That's economic corruption. He continues, they're full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips and slanderers and Facebookers. That's social corruption. <laughs> Continuing in verse 30, they are God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, and bitters of evil. That's spiritual wow. corruption. They're disobedient to their parents. Verse 31, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. That's family corruption. Sexual corruption, economic corruption, social corruption, family corruption. You see what Paul's doing? He's saying that the effects of our rejection of God are comprehensive. It affects every part of our lives. Our idolatry, the elevation of our desires over God's will, the putting of ourselves at the center instead of him, the refusal to submit to him so that we can do whatever we want, that has affected, that rejection has affected every dimension of our lives. The curse has affected all of us completely all the way through. The corruption of sin differs from person to person. Some of us are gonna struggle with certain sins on that list more than others, but the fall affects us all. And it all goes back to that one root sin we all share in common, the I problem. I, I wanna do what I wanna do. The human race is united by its common problem. We have rejected the authority of God and despised his glory. And for this, Paul says, all of us, the whole human race stands condemned. Whew. I knew this was gonna be a heavy, almost dark, but in order to really appreciate the good news of the gospel, we have to understand the bad news of why we need it so much. The Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer used to say that if he had one hour to talk to somebody about the gospel who had never heard it, he'd spend the first 50 minutes explaining the mess that we're in and only the last 10 minutes giving the gospel as the solution. You'll never appreciate the solution if you don't feel the gravity of the problem. You'll never run to Jesus for salvation if you don't know how desperately you need to be saved. So as we close out chapter one, Paul has laid down the first layer of his gospel foundation. All of us, regardless of our culture, background, or race, we are all in desperate need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and his healing from sin. That includes Gentiles, Jews, and you and me. If we're tracking with Paul, most of us will think, well, I had better start getting religious and clean up my act and to focus harder on getting better. Isn't religion the answer to our ungodliness and our unrighteousness? To that question, Paul now turns, which we'll learn about in the next section. All right, so that's chapter one right there. And um, we'll continue on with, with this next week. But, you know, we're reading the book of Romans right now. Let's read our chapter every day. Um, if 
you've not started yet, hey, this is a good time to start. We just did chapter one, so pick up chapter two and, and catch up. Where are we at, brother, uh, brother Al? Chapter two. Chapter six, see? And we just continue on. Um, a lot of good stuff. So hopefully this, I mean, when I hear, when I heard all this, it makes me want to read it even more. You know, like, man, I won't. I want, really get this. into studying this. That way, you probably understand everything that comes before it and after it. Yeah, it will give you a better understanding about what happened before up to where it's at than what's going to happen afterwards. Yeah, but I like how he showed us where bones of Paul were buried at mm-hmm. in the second mm-hmm. largest church in Rome, and he just showed us where Peter was buried at too, where the where the Peter's, Peter's. yeah place too. So. Uh, hopefully they'll show us some more and talk a little bit more about Rome itself and uh, some of the things. This is where the heart of Christianity was at the time. I mean, I wonder how many disciples are buried in that area anyway. Man, there's a lot of them died. I'd say thousands, brother. I knew it. Because they crucified them in the Roman Colosseum. Mm-hmm. They put them out there as entertainment and let them turn what, the lines. What, uh, which one of them was there when they crucified him? They crucified him upside down. Peter. Peter. He didn't deserve to be crucified this the way Jesus, Jesus was. Yeah, that was by his own request. Request after yeah. deceiving him so much, he, he didn't. Yeah, after they crucified him upside down. That's it. That's it. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight, God. We thank you, Lord, for this in-depth Bible study in the Book of Romans. Lord, I pray that you will enlighten us and deepen our hunger for your Word, God, and that you would just begin to. Open up your word. Give us revelation knowledge, God. Show us things in the book of Romans that we've never seen before. Help us understand even more today. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Now, I'm thinking about Phoebe. Now, y'all need to think about Phoebe for a while. That poor, little, that poor little girl was carrying that, you know. Maybe she was 70 years old. Maybe she was 25. I don't know. Maybe she was 13. I don't know how old she was. You know, think about it. Did you do one thing about it, Huh? Did you do any research on her? I just, no, it's the first I've heard about it. He, he talked about her and he said chapter 16. I got looked at it. I was like, well, there it is. And she was the one that carried it, carried that letter. You know, because think about it, the whole Bible is nothing but letters. Somebody had to carry it. Somebody had to take it to the church. Every, every single one of them. That's amazing. It's amazing that God, in his ultimate wisdom, protected all those letters and then put it all in the Bible for us. That's why this Bible is so precious, man. We really, we should just cling to our Bibles. All right, we ready. We done praying. <laughs> 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 Let's go. <laughs> <laughs>